Next witness is Dr. Carl Sagan. Thanks very much, Senator Durenberger. Uh, as I understand my, uh, my function, it is uh, to uh, give some sense of what the greenhouse effect is, to uh, try to say something about uh, greenhouse effect on, uh, on other planets, uh, to uh, again underscore that this is, uh, is a real phenomenon, and then uh, perhaps I can take liberty to say a, a few remarks about uh, uh, what to do about it. The uh, power of uh, human beings to uh, affect and uh, control and change the environment is growing as our technology grows. And uh, at present time, we clearly have reached the stage where we are capable, <clears throat> both uh, intentionally and inadvertently, to uh, make significant changes in the global climate and in the global ecosystem. And we've probably been doing, uh, on a smaller scale, things like that uh, for a very long period of time. Uh, for example, um, slash and burn agriculture, uh, which has been uh, with us for tens of thousands of years, probably. Uh, because the effects occupy more than a human generation, there is a uh, tendency to uh, say that they uh, are not our problem. Uh, of course, then they are nobody's problem. Uh, not on my tour of duty, not on my term of office. It's something for the next century. Let the next century worry about it. But the problem is that uh, there are effects, and the greenhouse effect is one of them, which have long time constants. If you don't worry about it now, it's too late later on. And so in this issue, as in so many other issues, uh, we are passing on extremely grave problems for our children uh, when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. This is ozone. That was Carl Sagan, the famous American scientist and author, speaking in front of the U.S. Congress in 1985. The world knew about climate change, even then. Much earlier, actually, scientists first argued that human emissions of greenhouse gases could change the climate in the 19th century. By the 1980s, it became common knowledge. So, why have we been so slow to act, especially compared to the ozone crisis? Susan Solomon is the atmospheric chemist who first explained the loss of ozone in Antarctica. She's now a professor in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She thinks she knows why we've been so slow. I think it's pretty clear that we solve hot crises in general much better than we solve slow crises. I mean, you only have to look at Ebola or COVID or any number of, of, of other um, threats to to society. You know, if I think the only thing you could compare to the Antarctic ozone hole as changing the whole nature of the discussion from a future problem to a now problem would be if a big piece of Greenland fell into the sea tomorrow. You know, then we would know that we were looking at meters of sea level rise that would happen very, you know, within, I don't know how long a big piece would take to melt, but let's say, you know, a couple of years max, maybe less. I don't. It you you have to the the thing that's 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 very different about climate change is the slowness of it. And I think that if you look at at history, every uh, environmental problem that involves a slow evolution takes much longer to get solved. I mean, you can use 
the example of lead and paint and lead in, in gasoline and, uh, you know, lead even in food utensils. That dates back 2,000 years. I mean, you know, the Romans used lead in aqueducts and, and in plates to make plates and other food utensils. And so we knew that lead was was dangerous for a long time, but it took us a very, very long time to figure out how bad it was and to have the science to, um, to make it clear to people. Naomi Oreskes, Harvard professor of the history of science, lists two main reasons why we haven't dealt with climate change as quickly as with the ozone crisis. I think there are several reasons, but the two most important that I've written on, one is that it's just a much more complicated problem and the product, fossil fuels, are not so easily replaced. In the case of chlorinated fluorocarbons, they were an important product, they were a profitable product, they were a good product, they were used in refrigeration, air conditioning, and other important uses, but the whole economy of the world did not depend upon chlorinated fluorocarbons. For climate change, we have a very different situation. The entire economy of the globe is dependent upon fossil fuels. The companies that produce these companies are for the most part not at all diverse companies. They generally produce one thing and one thing only, and that's fossil fuels, oil and gas, or in the case of coal company, coal. Almost none of these companies are diversified. And these companies have not done the right thing. Instead of accepting the scientific evidence and working with their own people or working with policymakers or working with academic and government scientists to come up with alternatives, they have actively fought tooth and nail at almost every possible juncture. And even to this day, they have continued to deny the scientific evidence on a variety of different levels. Climate change is by far the most imminent threat to our society. It's the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced, and solving it will require a fundamental societal shift. We must rethink the way we live, eat, work, and travel. And even though fixing the ozone layer wasn't as difficult as fixing the climate may be, we can still learn from our past successes as well as our mistakes. The first lesson is one we hopefully already learnt, but as the Romans used to say, repetition is the mother of learning. It is not up to the society to prove that a product is dangerous. It is up to those who produce the product to prove that it's safe. Otherwise, we'll just keep making the same mistakes all over again. If the ozone crisis taught us anything, that is to trust the science. Not just any science, thoughtful, carefully researched, tested, reviewed science. Science that we can trust is the one which other scientists try to disprove and fail to disprove, the one where consensus among the scientific community exists, as is the case for climate change. In her book, Why Trust Science, historian of science Naomi Oreskes argues why, in fact, we should trust science. The first reason is because science has a proven track record because we can show all the many ways in which scientists have helped us understand the natural world, cure diseases, and invent useful technologies. The second reason, Oreskes says, is because science is a form of work. A lot of us have a kind of mystical view of scientists as, as performing a certain kind of black magic, which we really don't understand, and so that makes us susceptible to misleading claims about it. But if you think about ordinary expertise, we trust experts in all aspects of our lives every single day. Uh, right now, my shower's leaking. After this podcast, I'm going to call a plumber. If my tooth hurt, I would go to a dentist. If I felt sick, I would go to a doctor. If my wiring was acting up, I would call an electrician. Um, if I needed home health care, I'd hire a nurse. 
And we do that all the time and we don't even think about it because of course you're going to call a plumber when you have a plumbing problem because those are the people who have been trained and who have the expertise to solve the problem. Now, you might get references because you know that not all plumbers are good, but you will hire a plumber to fix your plumbing. You won't hire a dentist or a gardener. And conversely, you wouldn't hire a plumber to do your gardening. So that notion of expertise as having experience and expertise in a form of work is something that's familiar to all of us in daily life and essentially non-controversial. So I encourage my readers to think of science that way, that science is a form of work. And to do that work, people develop expertise, just like the plumber maybe has an apprenticeship with a, with a more senior plumber. Scientists have apprenticeships where they work with more senior scientists. We call that graduate school. They get training, they get expertise, they get certification. We don't license scientists, but we do certify them, typically with a PhD in their field. And they're fairly specialized. People, unlike a plumber who might do all kinds of plumbing, or a plumber might actually have a specialty in, I don't know, industrial plumbing or something. Scientists typically have very narrow expertise. So we should trust and respect the expertise of those workers in the same way we trust or respect the expertise of a plumber or a gardener or a dentist. Now, the caveat on that is, so with the plumber, we might get references because if a plumber has a really bad reputation, we might say, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to use that plumber. But the same applies in science too. One of the things that we point out in Merchants of Doubt is that the climate change denier were people who, first of all, had no expertise in climate science. Merchants of Doubt is Oreskes's 2010 book in which she draws parallels between climate change and earlier debates over tobacco smoking, acid rain, and the hole in the ozone layer. So they were scientists, but they weren't climate science. And that should have been a red flag to journalists. Um, so they were presenting themselves as experts in an area that actually really didn't have expertise. So it's not enough just to recognize that a person's a scientist. You have to ask what kind of a scientist are they and do they actually have expertise in this particular area? That's a question that journalists almost never ask and ordinary people probably wouldn't even really think to ask, but we need to. And then the other point is that if they have a track record of being wrong, then it's like the plumber who has a bad track record. So we show in Merchants of Doubt that these climate change deniers had also denied the scientific evidence of the ozone hole, of the reality of acid precipitation, and of the harms of tobacco. And that should have been a giant red flag. That should have been a whole field of waving red flags, that these were people who had a track record of um, questioning or denying science that turned out to be correct and true. And so that should have been a signal that they were, the, in effect, they were bad plumbers. You can listen to our full conversation with Naomi Oreskes on this topic. Just listen to our extra content entitled Why Trust Science. There you can hear Oreskes explain the importance of a scientific consensus, consensus which most certainly exists when it comes to climate change. Today, after a century of research, the majority of the scientific community accepts global warming as fact. 99% of relevant scientists agree that climate change is real. This is how Mario Molina summarized climate change science during a congressional hearing in 2010. Uh, as we heard in various media reports as well as in these halls, some groups have stated in recent months that the basic conclusion of climate change science is not valid. This conclusion is that the climate is changing as a consequence of human activities with potentially very serious consequence for society. However, several groups of scientists have recently pointed out 
that the scientific consensus remains unchanged and has not been affected by these allegations. The conclusion is that it is now well established that the accumulation of greenhouse gases resulting from human activities is causing the average surface temperature of the planet to rise at the rate outside of natural variability with potentially uh, damaging consequences for society. I fully agree with this conclusion. There appears to be a gross misunderstanding of the nature of climate change science among those that have attempted to discredit it. They convey the idea that the science in question behaves like a house of cards. If you remove just one card, the whole structure falls apart. However, this is certainly not the way the science of complex systems works. A much better analogy is a jigsaw puzzle. Many pieces are missing, some might even be in the wrong place, but there is little doubt that the overall image is clear, namely that climate change is a serious threat that needs to be urgently addressed. And as Sherwood Rowland memorably said in his 1984 interview with The New Yorker, what's the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if in the end all we're willing to do is stand around and wait for them to come true? Jonathan Shanklin, one of the scientists who discovered the ozone hole and observed its recovery, agrees. Again, it, it's really a nice demonstration of science that you can predict how something should recover and then watch that recovery um, happen with in situ sampling of the atmosphere. Uh, so it, it's really quite remarkable how neatly the points line up on the expected graph. We don't need just good science. We need to debunk the bad science, myths that persist despite being challenged by science. And that's even more important today in what is often called the disinformation age. But this is nothing new. Even before the internet, different myths and fake science spread. Jamie Kitman, a veteran journalist who wrote extensively about lead and gasoline, had an interesting experience a few years back. There are a lot of people who are still mad that they took the lead out of gasoline, even though they're safer for it. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of this whole anti-science bent that, you know, some portion of this country has. Um, people like, I actually went to a NASCAR race and they didn't take uh, lead out of gasoline in NASCAR till like, uh, God, 30 years after they took it out of regular um, gasoline. And of course, they still use it in propeller planes and they make the same... Uh, false arguments for it that they did for automobiles. Um, uh, but they, people, I was speaking to young women one, uh, in one interview, and uh, they were really mad that there was no lead and gasoline anymore. They had never seen it in their life, except at NASCAR races. And they were like, man, they take the fun out of everything. Um, like, wow, uh, just wow. The same happened with the ozone. Even years after the Montreal Protocol, there were groups that were still peddling extreme theories about the ozone scare, as they called it. Listen to an excerpt from a press event organized to mark the publication of The Holes in the Ozone Scare, a book published by one of these groups in 1992. Uh, what I would like to say from the outset is that every single tenet of this theory is a, is a fraud. Well, actually, you can't say about the theory. A theory is a theory, but you've got a scare. We're supposedly the, the, we're going to get fried by ultraviolet radiation unless we ban chlorofluorocarbons. And I would like to start by picking up on what March mentioned before, is the question 
to, to start with from a reality standpoint. What will the consequences of banning CFCs on the world, on the world population? And experts in the refrigeration industry have estimated that between 20 and 30 million people are going to die every single year, starting around the year 2000. And it will increase as the decade goes along, but that, that's about the year 2000, uh, because of the ban on CFCs. And you don't need to go very... This, of course, didn't happen. But this type of disinformation could be heard for years, before and after the Montreal Protocol. At one point, the head of a CFC company questioned Roland and Molina's motives, accusing them of being Soviet agents. There is another parallel we can draw between the ozone and the climate crises. As was the case with the ozone issue, we will also need a lot of money to cover the costs of the green transition. Much more, actually. But that's not the number we should focus on. Susan Solomon. I mean, people have to be willing to invest in the change. That's what it boils down to. There's, a, there's too much fear of what the upfront costs are going to be, even though there'll be tremendous benefits downstream. And we also need to be very clear about how much it's going to cost if we don't do it. You know, the damage to, well, the human suffering, the loss of property, the damage to ecosystems. I mean, it will become massive the, the longer we wait. So um, people are getting that message now. And I think, um, you know, because in most parts of the world, for example, solar is now cheaper than any kind of fossil fuel um, energy, if you you know, are willing to bear the upfront cost. The real problem is a lot of people aren't willing to bear that cost. And they don't perceive how, how practical it is. I think the practicality of it needs to be made clear to people. Naomi Oreskes agrees about the importance of investment. So I think the more important point is not to worry about how to persuade people who are dug in in their resistance, but to try to figure out how to mobilize, you know, the much larger majority of people who do understand that this issue is real, but maybe just don't know what they should do about it. Right, so that's where the business community comes in, I think, in a big way. Yeah, I think that almost everyone in the business community understands that climate change is real, but maybe they're not sure what would be an effective policy response, or they're busy trying to run their company, and that's enough of a job that they don't necessarily feel that they have the time to sit down and figure out you know, what would a genuine, sustainable company look like. But that's, again, where I think we could help, right? Because there are companies that are making meaningful progress on these issues. There are people who have been thinking this through. And to the extent that we can highlight those conversations, in other words, let's not waste time arguing about denial. That's kind of in the past, in my opinion. But let's foreground the conversation about how the business community and particularly the investment community can play a positive role by in my opinion, not investing in further fossil fuel development, not investing in further fossil fuel infrastructure like export, gas export terminals, but reinvesting in renewable energy, in storage, um, you know, in efficiency. I mean, efficiency is the low hanging fruit that keeps getting missed in this conversation. We can help fix this problem by standing up and being counted, by changing the way we think about investment, by figuring out how we can do the investments that will help um, fix this problem. So I really do think the investment community, you know, really could be heroes. There's an opportunity here. There's a really historic opportunity. And the last lesson we can learn from the way we dealt with the ozone crisis is 
that we can solve an environmental crisis. We were faced with the biggest disaster humanity ever experienced, and we did something about it. That's probably the most important lesson. It's easy to feel down about the climate. We can and should do more, but it's good to keep in mind that we can solve the climate crisis. Uh, when you look at the past history, you find that even the toughest ones uh, have, actually can be solved and have been solved. And this one, I'm confident, will be too. You know, it doesn't mean the world's going to go back to the kind of climate we hit in the year 1800, but um, avoiding, um, you know, environmental breakdown. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm quite optimistic we can do that. And I, that would be, that would be quite an achievement for humanity. I think there are three P's that are fundamental to solving an environmental problem. One, it has to be personal to people. And in the case of the ozone hole, it was highly, highly personal. People understand the idea that ultraviolet light is not good for you. If you've ever been sunburned, you know it's not good for you. You know it can cause skin cancer. So you didn't have to convince people that this was a, a, a bad thing. It has to be personal to people. It has to be perceptible to people. They have to ideally be able to see it with their own eyes or smell it, you know, and you could do that with smog. You couldn't do that with ozone, but, you know, you had to at least be able to understand it. And the science was easy to understand when you saw those satellite images of, you know, holes in the Antarctic ozone layer. I mean, it was, it was very graphic. It was not, you didn't have to be a statistician to look at the graphs of the ozone changing and see that something was really weird. Um, so personal, perceptible, and finally, we have to believe that there are practical solutions. Um, I think with climate change, people viewed it as not as personal because it wasn't a hot topic. Um, also, because the type of phenomena that are involved are things that have happened in the past, they're just worse. So, you know, for example, and then they're more frequent. So heat waves. You know, we can show now that heat waves are worse than they've ever than they've ever been, and that they're happening much more often, that they're much more frequent and intense. But you know, it's not like a heat wave never happened before. So it's a it's familiar. It's not an alien planet. It's just a so that's why some people want to call it climate weirding or or something like that, which which is, is not unreasonable, but it, it's it's just a communication issue. People, many people have have not viewed it as much of a personal problem, but they do now because, you know, what I always said was just wait because it's going to emerge from the variability. People will begin to realize their summers are hotter, their heat waves are worse, their rainfall is more intense. As that happens, more and more people will recognize the seriousness. And that that is clearly happening, even in the United States, even in the red states, you know, the, the polls all clearly show it. So personal, perceptible. Well, again, you know, it's not quite as perceptible, you know, but it, but it's 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 getting pretty perceptible. The big stumbling block now is do people and I'm talking about the public have do the public understand that we have practical solutions. I think the experts know that by now we do have practical solutions. They they developed slowly. They developed because wise policy forced the industry to begin to develop alternatives. I have to credit Europe a lot in the Kyoto Protocol. I think that the, the Europeans led that and they 
created a push for alternatives that, that has obviously borne fruit. It's true. As climate science becomes more accepted by the public, it puts more pressure on politicians to act. According to the European Investment Bank's annual climate survey, 84% of EU citizens say that if we do not drastically reduce our consumption of energy and goods in the coming years, we are heading for a global catastrophe. The same goes for 88% of Chinese citizens. In the UK and the US, the percentage reaches 83 and 72, respectively. Hopefully, after listening to this podcast, you agree that action is needed if we want to avoid the worst-case scenario. Even more importantly, that you think we can still do something about it and that you want to help prevent it. As Sherwood Rowland was often quoted while he was warning people about the dangers of ozone loss, if not us, who? And if not now, when? Thank you for listening. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank. Subscribe to Climate Solutions. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. Audio of the Holes in the Ozone Scare press conference and Carl Sagan testifying before Congress in 1985 are property of C-SPAN, whose permission was attained to feature them in the episode.